We're so honored that you joined us for this week's message here at Hope Church in Kalispell, Montana. Our hope is that you will be encouraged and challenged in your relationship with Jesus. Be blessed as you listen to this week's message. It is a pleasure to be here this morning. And um, before I get going, I'm just going to tell you that the, there's two of my books, Commentary on the Psalms and a Commentary on the Book of Daniel. For any of you that are into Bible prophecy, if you'd like to pick one up, they're on a free will donation basis, but there's a catch. If you take one of those books for whatever you want to donate, um, I was talking this over with Pastor Lance, and we want you to give a little report to the pastor afterwards on the content of the book. What you liked, or maybe didn't like, and your uh, overall um, perception of the book, and whether you think it would be a good idea for other people to study that book. So keep that in mind if you pick up one of those books. I've, I've written more than 30 books, and, but those two are representative. I got, um, well, had the great privilege of being raised in a wonderful Christian home, and my parents spoke to me about the, or told me Bible stories from the time I could understand. I remember sitting on my mother's knee, and then one day I asked her, Mommy, where does God live? And she said, well, God lives up in heaven, but he also lives in people's hearts. So I said, well, does he live in your heart? And she said, yes. Does he live in daddy's heart? And she said, yes. I went on to name our friends, and uh, then I got into some of our, my little playmates until I, I finally got to my friend Terry, who was younger than I was and couldn't even uh, really talk very well yet. And so my mom said, uh, well, you see, we don't know about Terry because... A person has to ask God to live in their heart. And we still kid Terry that we don't know about Terry, but anyway. <laughs> so the big question was, does he live in my heart? And when I asked that question, my mom changed the subject. Because she figured I was too little to make that type of a decision. Well, I couldn't get a straight answer out of her. So I, I, we were sitting on the edge of the bed, and I was on her lap. So I, I climbed off of her lap and knelt down beside the bed, and my little head didn't even make it up over the top of the bed. It was lost down in the tassels of the bedspread. But I prayed in a loud voice and said, Come into my heart, God. Come into my heart, Jesus. And stood up and danced up and down and said, He's in there. And he was. Well, my spiritual development went on, and when I was a little bit older, my dad decided to broaden my young horizons and teach me about foreign missions. So he was an engineer on a major construction project for the U.S. government, and he didn't have a lot of time, so in a hurry, he bought the wrong book. He thought he had something, you know, nice uh, National Geographic style, beautiful pictures of foreign countries. No. It was a Life magazine freelance photographer who went down there and did a book about how the indigenous people 
in South America really live. And so the book was very candid, and it showed the poverty, the hopelessness, the drunkenness, the bloody machete fights. And on it, well, Dad started trying to get rid of this book, and it wasn't material for four-year-olds. You know. So I pried it open for one last look, and there was this family sitting beside the road in total despair. They'd worked hard all week. The husband had drank up all the money. He got in a fight. Now he's in a, passed out in the ditch. And they're waiting for him to sober up so they can all go home. And this is their life, week in and week out. So I turned around and looked at my dad and I said, um, why do they live like that? And my dad said, I guess they don't know any better. And so I said, well, why don't they know any better? And he said, I guess no one has gone to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those people. So I asked him, well, why hasn't anyone gone? And my dad said, well, I guess no one really cares about those people. No one really loves them enough to go share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, I looked him square in the eye and I said, but you care, don't you, Dad? And he said, yes, son, I care. So then I said, uh, why don't we go help him? Well, this wasn't where Dad had planned to go in his um, little um, session with me. And he began to struggle. Okay. So he began to say, he began to say, you can't just leave for South America. I thought, you know, these people really need help. We better leave tomorrow morning and go help them. If you look, South America, that would be missionary work. In order to be a missionary, God would have to call you. God would have to open the doors. God would have to provide the finances. He went on, he laid it all on God. It was all God's fault those poor people down there didn't know Jesus. And then he came around and, you know, tried to rant it out by saying, maybe when you grow up, you can be a missionary. But again, I didn't get a good answer out of him. So I climbed off his lap and knelt beside the sofa and prayed again, loud enough for my mom to hear in the kitchen. When I said, dear God, please call my parents to be missionaries so I won't have to wait till I grow up. And my mom later said, when she heard that little prayer, she thought, oh no, that one's going to be answered. <laughs> well, I trotted off to bed, and um, the life of our family was never the same. My dad just couldn't get away from that little prayer, and neither could my mom. And so he ended up resigning from his job, retraining in linguistics. He became a expert in New Testament Greek and by the time I was eight years old we were on the mission field in Columbia South America with the Wycliffe Bible translators and William Cameron Townsend the founder was there and uh, he picked my dad to oversee Bible translation in 42 languages in Colombia and Panama and so I got to uh, travel around Colombia with my dad as his partner 
taking my high school by correspondence and um, watching my dad work through all these thorny problems of how to translate difficult things into um, the different indigenous languages and working through, you know, whatever personnel problems or, you know, all these difficulties that missionary leadership have to deal with all the time on the field. And then something awful happened. Communist rebels had been forming out in the jungles, but nobody had really heard that much about them. Our family went to Columbia in 1964, and that's the year that the FARC guerrillas formalized their organization. And they took the missionary effort as a threat. And so they began trying to threaten and then kill or run out the large and the small missionary agencies until they had run out over 850 foreign missions, foreign missionaries out of Eastern Columbia alone. Then they started killing pastors and burning down church buildings. Just one guerrilla commander is thought to have killed more than 400 pastors. We began working with widows of pastors and orphans of pastors, and we were there uh, when many of them were uh, executed. And I remained in Eastern Columbia, and pretty soon I was virtually alone. And at first I kind of thought the Lord would probably give me a a, a nice reward for sticking it out and um, but I was worried about the guerrillas and what they were doing and how they had decimated such such a massive missions effort Colombia wasn't an easy country to open up to foreign missions and when they did uh, the, the mission agencies put a lot of people into Colombia and we thought a lot had been accomplished. You know, we were sending in the reports every month. You know, the, we, when we gave the altar call, and so many people raised their hand when nobody was looking and, and, and prayed, uh, uh, repeated the prayer with us, and, and we started so many new congregations, and uh, we were able to do this and that and train so many pastors. And, and those numbers looked really good on our reports until the communists came, and it all fell through. And pretty soon, the Christians had either left, Colombia became known for millions of displaced persons, more than any other country in the world, still has that distinction. At first, uh, Syria was, Syria uh, passed Colombian displaced persons, but now with the situation in Venezuela, there have been another three or four million displaced persons come out of Venezuela into Colombia, so Colombia's back in the lead. Many of these people are Christians. And, well, I, I thought, well, you know, I'm going to stay in. I felt kind of like Elijah. You know, I'm the only one left and they're after me. You know? But I thought God was going to give me a great reward for all of this. And I was praying every day intensely that God would send the gospel to the communist guerrillas, to the FARC insurgents. And I prayed that right up until the day where I got kidnapped and captured, taken out and tied to a tree out in the middle of the jungle in a 
camp. And I couldn't understand at first what, why the Lord would let that happen to me. And, uh, but after a while, uh, the Lord began to speak to me. And it went like this, you know, I mean, who, who's been the one been praying to send the, that I send the gospel to the gorillas, you know? And, and, and how come you're so upset because they sent you out into the middle of this gorilla camp? You know? and that wasn't the way I thought God was going to evangelize the gorillas. I thought, you know, maybe they could listen to something on the radio or find a Bible or uh, discover a gospel track someplace. But uh, I really hadn't. And then it dawned on me, you know, I had just prayed myself into this job. And I had been blowing it because I'd been, you know, trying to escape and, you know, got in a fight with them. And um, so I had to, and then I thought for sure they're going to kill me. But um, I, I better make, you know, the strongest case I can for the gospel, the best presentation I can uh, before I get shot. Well, the Lord started touching hearts in there. And the men and women started fighting to be among one another, you know, trying to elbow each other out because they wanted to be alone with me on guard duty. And that's the only time a communist guerrilla will really open up what's really going on in their heart. But after a while, the leadership decided they didn't want me in their guerrilla camp anymore. So it was either shoot me or let me go. And... Uh, a lot of different factors came to bear. But I ended up leaving on fairly decent terms. And this unit that had captured me was a select group of young men and women that were being trained for leadership. And the only thing that was left after they'd been given a special courses course, the, the, in order to graduate and be full-fledged guerrilla commanders, they were supposed to kidnap an American. And about the only Americans left in the area were my brother and I, and they decided they didn't want to do him, so they did me. William Cameron Townsend's son, Billy Townsend, sized up my brother like this. He said, my brother Chatty is what you would get if you crossed John Wayne, Tarzan, and Dennis the Menace. <laughs> and the gorillas didn't want to do that, so they... They took me instead and left my brother to be the negotiator. Well, one of the ethnic tribal leaders that was the highest ranking guerrilla at the time from his uh, group, which were one of the tribes that the Spaniards had um, abused the most and also from the largest tribe in Colombia over 500,000 people and they were very grateful to my dad for my dad's mission work and so uh, this man went to the leader of the guerrilla movement and said look you did the wrong thing and um, if, if you don't let him go you're going to lose the support of all the indigenous people so you better take that into consideration and uh, so the leader himself came out and let me go and uh, th I had other friends I'd saved someone's mother in the airplane and done other stuff, and uh, it, all, it all came around for my favor. And I found myself being released from this guerrilla camp after five months and being given the privilege of being allowed to operate in the areas that the guerrillas controlled. 
And so began a ministry to reach the fighting factions of Colombia, which weren't just the leftist guerrillas. It also had to do with the right-wing paramilitary groups and all different kinds of Colombian armed forces in all different varying degrees of corruption and need for the Lord. And so um, I kept getting kidnapped by the guerrillas, but every time the leader heard about it, he'd make them let me go. And they'd say, you again? And you never learn? And um, the strategy that the Lord gave us was radio. And so we set up radio stations, FM stations on high mountain peaks, shortwave radio stations, and um, AM radio stations. And then an outfit called Galcom started making solar-powered radios locked onto those frequencies and then putting audio Bibles on the chip the, one, the radios you have now, not only have, they can have two versions of the Bible on the chip or, or two different languages and a hundred of my messages. And so um, these are the ones we're putting into Venezuela right now. But, and then the Lord showed me that um, in order to get this stuff behind enemy lines, um, drop them by parachute. So we began flying behind enemy lines, dropping these parachutes. We deployed eventually more than 500,000 parachutes. And going from a little missionary family, left out there alone, didn't have much support, um, the Lord turned it all around. And the way that he did that was because of all the Christians that had been killed and all the Christians that had been displaced and all the churches that had been destroyed, uh, it caused quite a stir all over the world. And many organizations and churches in North America and Europe began to take up offerings to help the persecuted Christians of Colombia. And then when these organizations would go down there and try and figure out what to do with their offerings, uh, th there weren't any missionaries left. And, and the only one that they could find was me. <laughs> and so we went from this Elijah complex into a, um, just having blessings rain down on us like you couldn't believe. So much that we didn't know what we were going to do with it. You know, they were driving tractor-trailer loads of stuff and filling up areas as big as this room with literature and Bibles, and I thought, we'll never get it distributed. And then the Lord opened up doors where we get it, it would go out, and they would come in there with more. And uh, my daughters produced a movie. All kinds of little kids wanted to be like me, and they wanted to go out and have ministry like, and they wanted to pass out, um, you know, well, wouldn't you know a ministry gave us two million copies of uh, edited pages out of the Action Bible for kids. And we got to pick the pages and they put together in full color. And every little kid that wanted to be a missionary got their own box of stuff and got to go out there and do it and invite these people to some kind of a meeting or maybe even a showing of the movie. And we went through all this stuff. And the Lord began touching hearts so much so that the communists um, couldn't, um, when their men and women first started getting converted, they, they shot the first ones. And then, uh, you know, finally, you know, were they going to shoot all their, all their men and women? You know, they couldn't. You know. So they, they started uh, sending the ones that would uh, declare themselves for the Lord to more remote areas and split them up. <laughs> and they spread it all over the place. 
and um, eventually went to peace negotiations in Havana, Cuba. And I was invited as the first victim that they were going to ask forgiveness from. So the Lord lined it up for the Colombian government, American government, Cuban government, all to okay me going to Cuba. And I said, you know something? I don't really want to argue with these guys because it's terrible hard to win an argument with an uh, atheist, Marxist that won't listen. So we have this elderly gentleman who the Lord had been sending to Colombia to pray for the sick and had seen a lot of miracle healings. So I thought, I'll take Albert with me and if we get a chance, we'll pray for him. And if the Lord starts doing miracles, they won't be able to deny the existence of God. And then if God is real, so is the devil, and we'll be able to tell him all kinds of stuff. You know, uh, and so that's what happened. We went to Havana on January 3rd, 2013. And, and after a few days, God got us the top leaders and the girlfriend of the man that was in charge of the peace delegation um, had part of her foot blown off and uh, received an impact in the top of her chest that crunched everything and she was just in constant pain and the Lord healed her she even had some sunspots on her cheeks and now took her cheeks in his hands and prayed and all that left she had the face of a 15 year old and, um, and so we got to pray for high ranking communists and high ranking Cubans and um, many of them had to accept the reality God is real and so the, the man who had got me out of the kidnapping he was one of the 30 peace negotiators and so by this time he had openly become a Christian and began to declare his faith, faith on international television when they would interview them and uh, some of the diplomatic personnel on the island from different countries got converted. Well, after a while, he got sent um, out of Havana and replaced with a guerrilla commander who is known for 30 years as my worst enemy. And I didn't know if I should go back to that island or not because the guy hated me so bad. But my brother made me go. He said, you just, you gotta go. And so I went and um, took Albert and we prayed for this guy and he was one of the cases of I mean he, was, he had been badly injured badly crippled many of, uh, any of those men that had been out in the field that long none of them you know, were in very decent physical shape and the Lord spectacularly healed him and turned him into a friend And it just kept going like this until they decided to... It was a flawed peace treaty. But the ones that were touched by the Lord really did begin to forgive their enemies. And it's still going on. And, and there are uh, insurgents that are still out there trying to make money off the drug traffic. But most of rural Colombia became free 
in terms of ministry being able to go there with the gospel and rebuild those church buildings and the, the harvest was already there because the rural people that had been caught in the middle they had already turned to the Lord and we'd been feeding them with literature and with radio broadcasts and so um, but, but guess who turned out to be a lot of the new ministers converted gorillas the ones that have been causing the problem and God turned them around and put them back out there and we went back with a, a dear friend of mine who's now with the Lord, friend and mentor but I bring this up pastor because of your mention of uh, Paul he um, preached a message out there um, after his mission had been ran out and we were allowed to go back and many of the communists and former communists came to the conference and one of his messages was on the thorn in the side of Paul and, and my friend said that he thought that that thorn in the side was the fact that Paul had persecuted the church persecuted Christians helped kill Stephen helped kill others dragged men women and children off to prison and Paul could never forget that and the enemy would bombard him with it and tell him he wasn't worthy and try and use the guilt to stop his ministry but the Lord turned that into a driving force so that Paul once he knew what God wanted him to do he would go do it and he didn't care about the danger and he didn't care about the hardship he didn't care about the adversity and I found that these rebels that had been persecuting Christians and killing pastors and doing the same thing that Paul had been doing before his conversion that they had that same type of a um, almost a, a compulsion I call it an Apostle Paul complex and one of those guys men or women is worth dozens of ordinary missionaries because they don't have reverse they don't back up and just like they were committed to a wrong cause and the enemy had them deceived once their eyes are opened they put everything into the gospel and into serving the Lord they don't hold anything back this is how Venezuela is being evangelized right now this is how Bibles are flooding into Venezuela because of people like this and they know how to operate behind enemy lines they know how to witness to other people that have the same ideology that they used to have they're not afraid of getting killed or thrown in prison or whatever and so there's a huge revival going on right now in Venezuela it's estimated about a third of Venezuelans are going to evangelical churches now And most of them don't have Bibles. So our question is, how long can a major revival like this stay on track if nobody has a Bible? Some places, not even the pastor has a Bible. And where the pastor has a Bible and nobody else does, he writes the verses up on the board and the people copy him, but you can't even buy paper in Venezuela. I mean, there's no toilet paper, there's no writing paper, there's no notebooks, nothing like that is left. 
And when they get a Bible, they say that's the greatest gift that anyone could give them. They put on their best clothes to come and get their Bible. They ride horses or paddle canoes for days in order to get there. We can't do Bible distribution in the cities because it's just you get, you get thronged. You remember, that's why Jesus got in the boat and pushed it off on the shore so that he wouldn't get pressed by the crowd. Well, that's what happens in Venezuela if you try and give out Bibles. If we go to the most remote rural place we can think of with a couple truckloads of Bibles, in the course of two or three days, 10 or 12,000 people will show up looking for Bibles. But that's easier to manage than hundreds or thousands of people trying to throng you in the, in the city. The Cuban advisors that are sent to Venezuela are getting caught up in the revival and are going back to Cuba converted. You're getting good reports. We don't know how much longer the Lord is going to delay his return. It's, I guess it's up to the Father. But um, if the Lord doesn't come back too soon, there's a lot of countries that are going to flip for the Lord. It's just a matter of time. Until we saw what was going on inside of Venezuela, the country that I was thinking was the country with the fastest growing church and other friends that know about you know, international missions were thinking the same. You, you might be able to guess it, you might not. But we had our eyes on Iran. And we still do. But what's going on in Venezuela is above and beyond anything we've ever seen before. It's gone from two million Christians when they voted in socialism to over nine and a half million today in 20 years. <laughs> Colombia has gone from less than one half percent of the population, evangelical Christian, to about 25% today. That's in the 57 years that we've been there. But Venezuela is going at a much faster pace. Egypt is coming along. The Christians in China are multiplying. It's only here in North America that it seems that every year there are less dedicated Christians than the year before. And many churches are losing their young people. Christianity has virtually died out in Western Europe. And at the rate we're going, North America could be next unless God turns us around. And we are seeing encouraging signs that things are about to turn around. And, and you folks here are an encouragement to us when we come and see spiritual life. Real spiritual life, the life of Jesus, is way more contagious than the coronavirus. But in order to be able to evangelize effectively, there are some requirements. 
but they're not the requirements that we normally think of. We don't all need to get PhDs in messiology. I'm not against education, but um, that's not the primary requirement. The Apostle Paul was highly educated, but most of the other apostles were not. Your gender isn't important to God. God can use men. He can use women. Your age isn't important. Jesus said, if so much as a little child is received in his name, he's received. And on the mission field, we found as little children, it was easier for us to get received than our parents. And if we got received by the people, God got his foot in the door. What is absolutely important, though, is a clean heart. If our hearts are clean and pure, God can use us. I studied agriculture and aviation. And in agriculture, in seed science, you find that in most cases, if you're talking about fruit or, or about grain, guess where the seed is? It's in the fruit. And the spiritual parallel is, if there's no fruit of the Holy Spirit being produced in your life, you really don't have any incorruptible seed to plant. Or if you tried to plant rice or wheat or any grain and it wasn't mature, in other words, if it was just in an immature state, a milk state, it wouldn't be viable. It wouldn't grow. It would just rot under the clods. And Scripture talks about that, particularly in the book of Amos and other places, about the seeds rotting under the clods. So something, some, a degree of maturity is important if the seed is going to germinate and grow. And we call this maturity in Christ. But you see, Jesus Christ already is mature. And in order to be able to plant his life in others, all we have to do is yield to his will. We don't have to attain to years and years and years of experience on our own because we can use his experience. And we're not trying to multiply our life, it's his life. And his life is viable. And the only way that uh, we can uh, mess this up is if we don't listen to him. So I'd like to bring you full circle and have you think. Are you being used effectively for God? The growth of the congregation really isn't up to the pastor. 
it's the sheep that are expected to multiply. And the Bible describes the situation, what happens if every sheep were to have twins? Do you realize how fast it would be like an explosion would take place? And God wants to bring that about. What's stopping it? What's stopping him from, we know there's times and seasons in God, but what's stopping it? Well, the only thing that could possibly be holding back the Holy Spirit is if we're resisting God's plan and purpose for us. Because if we yield to the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit, we can put to death the deeds of the flesh. And our lives can be clean from the inside out. And when we're clean, God can multiply us. And if we're faithful a little, God will give us more. And time and time and time again, we go over our ministry in Columbia. Are, we, are the things that we're not using? Uh, we have over 100 employees, over 500 volunteers. And one time I just decided, and we've been donating all this stuff. It's just things that we're not using. I decided to go look under everybody's bed and in everybody's closet. And I turned up 600,000 items that had been squirreled away for a rainy day. 600,000 items. Enough to load up another 100,000 parachutes. And when we look at it this way, when we use what God has given us effectively, that's when he supplies more. When there's a clean place to go, that's when he provides new baby lambs. He doesn't like to wake people up spiritually if they're going to be thrown into a big pen. And there's, there's places out there that, spiritually speaking, are a pig pen and need to be cleaned up. And you're fortunate to be in a place where you've got clean leadership, a clean place to bring others. And so keep this thought in your heart. Are you living up to the potential that you could really have in Jesus Christ? And I'll close with this. You're going to study Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 starts out saying, Paul calls himself the prisoner of the Lord. Well, it literally happened to me. And then he talks about the bond of unity in the Spirit bond of peace in other words if we start fighting with one another we'll break that and destroy our fruitfulness in the Lord church splits are the bane of Christianity and don't let it happen to you because that sets back what God's doing and the pastor was talking about God, our God doesn't have limits but the amount of grace that he can pour out upon each and every one of us doesn't have any limit either. Look at Ephesians 4, 7. It talks about grace being bestowed on us 
according to the measure that the Lord Jesus Christ decides to use. And pray that he'll up the measure of grace upon your life. Let's stand up. Heavenly Father, we ask that you might shower your mercy and your grace may be multiplied upon us and that we might be channels for you to touch those around us. We ask, Heavenly Father, that if there's anything unclean in our lives, that you would expose it and deal with it and circumcise it right out of our hearts so that our desires will change and so that we will not be an impediment to what you want to do in our church, in our, in our city, in our country. If, if, if we are holding on to something that isn't your best, may we let go of it so that you can truly bless and prosper. So that our lives will display your love, your life, your glory to those who are in darkness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Hope Church. If you enjoyed this message, you can easily support the ministry of Hope Church at hopechurchmt.com give. Also follow us on social media at hopechurchmt. Be blessed and have a great week.